Dun dun da da dun da dun dun bum bum ba ba bum ba ba bum 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 ba 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 doo doo doo. Hey, what's up? I'm singing the Rocky song, and this is Muthanomics 50. Holy smokes, 50 podcasting episodes that four people around the world have listened to. Gotta love it. Gotta love the dedication. Gotta love the hustle. Gotta love the grind. How come you didn't post last Saturday, Brandon? Um, Well, I told you on the previous one that I had prior engagements. What I didn't want to say ahead of time was that I was going to be out of town. So search property tax records and come and loot and pillage my abandoned home um, when I'm not present to defend it with uh, various steel and lead. Um, So, yeah, that's why I just said I had previous engagements. But we were in... Auburn, Alabama. Got to experience my first SEC football game. And excuse me while I flip through my notes, what I want to talk about. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I got, got, oh, and then I got to write down Virginia too, because Virginia is hilarious. What do you mean, Virginia? The elections, um, Virginia elections. And I think Ed Durr, I'm going to throw him in as a last minute addition because he's my new hero. Um, so yeah, Muthanomics 50, half century mark. Took long enough. Um, but yeah, me and my three boys, we went down to Auburn about 90 minutes. Actually, it's a 90-minute drive from the airport in Atlanta. It's about two hours from our house in the middle of the street. Our house. So we got down there, Airbnb, one of my best friends for 25 years. Uh, his son is a sophomore at Auburn. So we decided, they invited us down about a month ago to go experience uh, Old Miss v. Auburn. And I had never been to an SEC football game. And I've heard that SEC football is like serious. Where I grew up out west, um, all over the place, I think I've mentioned 17 places that we lived. When we finally got north of Albuquerque, it was the 17th stop on the... A merry-go-round of muth locations. <laughs> it was like, where's Waldo? But where's muth? And it changed like every three to six months. Uh, I am drinking coffee, 4 p.m. I got to go teach tennis here. Late at night and it's freezing. So I'm trying to warm up and get the second wind. Um, oh, Ready for that after hours PR drop. Me too. Me too, rocket fuel. Me stinking too. Um, waiting on hopefully good news from uh, the company Owlet, which I probably have mentioned before, that I'm nostril deep in on their warrants and added some commons today in the mid threes. Um, Word on the street is that they might be getting FDA approval for their infant heart monitoring oxygen uh, monitoring sock. And if that happens, um, we should see at least a handful of rocket ship emojis. Uh, So we'll see. And user Rocket Fuel is hoping um, that they have an after hours PR drop stating that they that they have FDA approval. So anyway, um, the the football I experienced growing up was University of New Mexico Lobos. And while the University of New Mexico Lobos basketball team um, has some relatively storied history as far as, you know, as as far as as storied as you can get for Albuquerque, uh, 
you know, they've made the Sweet 16 a few times. Actually, no, 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 I take that back. Growing up, they never made the Sweet 16. That was their big failure, is even with Kenny Thomas and Luke Longley, Rob Robbins, um, some old school cats. Uh, Danny Granger played with them for a while before going on to the Pacers and becoming a superstar in the NBA. Um, Tony Snell, before he became a, a, a very accomplished point guard, I think for the Chicago Bulls, they were known to make runs um, to the NCAA tournament and then promptly lose in the second round, um, sometimes even the first. So they had a streak going where they hadn't made the Sweet 16 in decades, and they were trying to break that, I don't know, what, 10, 12 years ago uh, when they had uh, Steve Alford as their coach. And before he bailed and turned traitor and went out to UCLA for bigger paycheck, uh, and they lost to I think they lost to all t- of all teams Jeremy Lin and Harvard. It was either Harvard or Yale. I, I think I think Jeremy Lin played for Harvard, whichever Ivy League non basketball non athletic school um, that. Jeremy Lin played for they beat the favored Lobos I think it was a 12-5 seed upset and that was like okay the Lobos the Lobos stink if you lose to an Ivy League school um yeah you're you're not known for you don't deserve to be in the Sweet 16 but anyway they had the pit for their basketball it was like you know it was nationally famous for the the volume and the audible decibel levels that you could get in that thing. It was a cool stadium. And when we went back out in 2016 to visit, they had renamed the pit Wise Guys Stadium. And I was like, you kidding me? So I Googled it and the athletic director took like $1.2 million sponsorship money from some company called Wise Guys Pizza. And after it being called the pit forever, they slapped this huge old logo and god awful ugly looking name on it, Wise Guys Arena. And I was like, well, there's corporatism run amok. Where's tradition? Where's sacred to tradition? It's always been the pit, not Wise Guys Arena. Um, anyway, their football team. We'll go back to their football team. Their football team was horrible. Late 80s, we got to the Albuquerque area in 88. And from 88 into the mid-90s, they were atrociously bad. I mean, they were just awful. Like, you know, 0 and 11 seasons, 1 and 10 seasons, 2 and 9. Um, and I remember turning them on on the local CBS affiliate, KRQE News Channel 13, um, with Ron somebody. He was he was the anchor. Ah, I can see his face. I can't remember his name. Donnelly? Don- Ron Donnelly. Ron Donnelly something. Um he was like a soft-spoken. He actually looked like a skinny, emaciated Alan Alda from, <laughs> from MASH. That's what he reminded me of. He was like a he was like a 75-year-old, like emaciated, uh, malnourished Alan Alda. That's who he reminded me of. Very pleasant. Good anchor, I guess, if you paid attention to the news when you were 12, which I did. I used to take my allowance money, which was a whopping four quarters a month, and I would go buy the Wall Street Journal with it. Um, And that's contributed to me being a titan of Wall Street industry. Um, But the football team was just notoriously bad, just constantly losing. In fact, I think if you go and look at it, I remember Marshall Falk when Marshall Falk was at San Diego State and he was just running roughshod over all of the high school-esque competition around the, I think they were playing in the WAC back then. This was before they were in the Mountain West. This was still the WAC. 
Um, that's whack. Afwack. They played San Diego State. And if I remember correctly, I want to say the San Diego State beat the UNM Lobos like 72 to 10. And I think Marshall Falk had like 400 yards rushing and like six TDs or just some ungodly rushing number. Um, and I remember going, man, that's embarrassing. That's like that's like going on playing a yaffle. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'll, you should Google that. Maybe I should Google it. Do I really want to go down that rabbit trail and get lost, buried in some 1992 whack Wikipedia page? Um, I am talking about, oh, so Auburn. I'm just going to write down Auburn. We're gonna, we're gonna, we are going to go down this rabbit trail because I'm curious now. Auburn. Come on, pen work. A-U-B-U-R-N. That's where I'm going. I'm still talking about Auburn SEC football with the backdrop being how bad the New Mexico Lobos were. Marshall Falk. San Diego State versus New Mexico Lobos. There's got to be. In 1993, okay, that popped up. Um, oh, man, my memory's horrible. My memory's horrible. October 4, 1992, Marshall Falk ran for 200 yards and two touchdowns. So maybe I exaggerate a little bit. And the final score is 49 to 21. Why do I remember being a 72-10 thrashing? Huh. Well, the, the title does say Falk Aztecs run circles around the hapless Lobos. So. <laughs> oh, got a little coffee burp. The Western Athletic Conference. Um, huh. San Diego State. Okay, well, that, oh, that'll be a note. That's just curiosity. I thought it was 72-10. There's got to be a 72-10. Um, Lobo's football loss in there because that just is stuck in my memory banks. Um, San Diego State offense ground up the rest of the Lobo's defense during a relentless 49 to 21 drubbing of the Lobo's Saturday night, despite a game plan um, by their impotent coach, somebody, somebody, somebody. New Mexico football field was chewed down to its skin in nearly a dozen spots because of a grub worm outbreak. <laughs> if the <laughs> so I went down this rabbit trail to compare the Lobos football to SEC football. And this is from October 4th, 1992. That's the lead line on the Los Angeles Times website for their 49-21 victory over the Lobos. It says, quote, New Mexico's football field was chewed down to its skin in nearly a dozen spots because of a grub worm outbreak. So that gives you an idea of the disparity in quality between what I grew up on with UNM Lobos football and SEC Auburn football. So my other memory of the uh, Lobos football amongst several terrible losses um, was we went to a couple games and they would just give away tickets like nobody would want to come to these things they give away tickets and so we went to this game in the mid 90s like probably 94 95 and they had the entire eastern side of the stadium roped off to force everybody over onto the west side so that they the tv cameras could make it appear that there was actually people at the game um and i remember sitting there just going oh this is so sad like Three quarters of the stadium is just empty bleachers. Like literally there's nobody. Well, and this was before they expanded one of the end zones. I think the south end zone never had seats. 
Was that what it was? The South End Zone didn't have seats until later, like maybe the late 90s or early 2000s. Um, so it was just the two sides. But, oh, man, there was nobody on the other side roped off. They just corralled you over to the, the TV side so that the cameras would appear. Oh, look, New Mexico football. Woof, woof, woof. Everyone's a Lobo. It's popular. So fast forward, I don't know, 30 years uh, to this last Saturday, and we go down to the Auburn football game against Mississippi State. Ole Miss. They played Ole Miss. I think Ole Miss and aren't Ole Miss and Mississippi State the same thing? I think so. Um, anywho, we get there, and it's like, I mean, the the population of Auburn is probably the capacity of the New Mexico Lobos football stadium. Like, it's a tiny town. And we show up, and this place is just bursting at the seams. We leave the Airbnb at 8.30. We get down to where we park at about 9, 9.30. And we walk over to the campus, and, like, even at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, coffee shops are full Um, the line out the door to this breakfast place was like probably a 40 minute wait. So we bailed on that, went over and found some Benoit, Benet's, Benway's. I I don't remember what I'm talking about. I don't even know how to pronounce them. They were just like these fluffy carb powder sugar grease bombs, um, that I just sampled because I'm on a low carb diet. Um, but everybody else just devoured them like they had been hunting with bear grills for three weeks living off a bat guana and crusty squirrel skin. Um, So I ended up going down to Dunkin' Donuts later and got, why are you talking about your breakfast? Nobody cares. Got an egg white sandwich and got my son a couple egg and cheese, sausage, wake up wraps, but the place was bursting. And so we head over the tailgate. My, our, our friends got a tailgate tent set up with the tailgate guys, which in my opinion is probably one of the coolest startups. Um, that's happened in the last 10 years, just a couple Auburn grads were like, hey, we should provide tailgating services to people who don't wanna lug all the stuff around. So you can go on and you can rent a tent and order food from a local restaurant and they bring a tent and chairs. You can add a Dish Network TV to sit there and watch college football all day long. So we show, uh, show up to this thing and I've gotta admit it was cool, but it was also f- had kind of a cultish feel to it. Like um, our friends uh, provided brand new bright orange Auburn sweatshirts for us because they were having, quote unquote, an orange out, meaning that they wanted the entire stadium to be filled with orange. And I kind of got the sense that if I didn't have a brand new bright orange Auburn sweatshirt on, that I might have been taken behind the stadium and beat with a tube sock and some AA batteries um, for being the opposition team. Um, that's kind of the cultish feel that I got from some of those people, especially as the liquor started invading their intestinal tracts uh, on a more and more frequent scale as the afternoon progressed. Um, so a little, little culty, but also kind of cool, like just a different atmosphere. Like they take that crap seriously. They're not messing around. It's not like, oh yeah, who cares if they win? It's like, no, if they don't win, like, you know, I'm sure some of those guys would have gone home and like beat their families and kicked the dog. Um, So got some barbecue catered. It was pretty good. And side note, I just blasted the sugary deep fried powdered sugar nonsense. Whoever catered this stuff, they provided a barbecue sauce that has zero sugar in it. I've been hunting the internet 
I'm trying to find a delicious barbecue sauce that's not littered with sugar. And I've been having a hard time finding it. Um, I found one and it tasted like absolute garbage. Um, it was like super cumin-y, had like way too much cumin, no barbecue flavor. I was like, what is this? I could just get some tea water and, you know, put a quarter cup of cumin powder in it and I could probably make this on my stovetop. So anyway, this, this uh, local Auburn uh, restaurant, they have a sugar-free barbecue sauce. Um, which was a yellow sauce. It was spicy. It was delicious. We brought a couple bottles home and I'm going to try to find them online to order them going forward. Why don't you like sugar? Um, I don't know. I just never have. I grew up, I grew up like vegan, sugarless soy milk. Um, it was a treat if we got honey. Uh, my parents were extremely health conscious and yeah, I just never got a sweet tooth. I just never developed a sweet tooth. Like for me, 95% cacao, cacao, that chocolate, this 95% cocoa, like that's the max sweet for me. Um, my daughter thinks I'm disgusting. She's like, gross, daddy. You like eating coffee beans in a chocolate bar format? Um, and she likes the dark chocolate that's like 75%. And I'm like, what is that? This is like just pure freaking soda water. It's so sweet. Um, yes, I don't know. I just don't like sugar. It doesn't make me feel good and I don't like it. It's too sweet. So the day progresses. I'm trying to think what else we did. Uh, it got pretty cold. So we made a couple trips to the bookstore to buy some Auburn sweatpants. Um, got some hand warmers, uh, continued to eat. And every single tent, it was like tents everywhere. And the tailgate guys had them set up with this dish stuff. And everybody was just sitting around boozing hard and watching college football, watching the Michigan-Michigan State game, watching the, who, who was playing? I don't remember, Wisconsin and somebody. I mean, Iowa State. and I mean, just it was just college football galore. Um, and I got to admit, I, I've never really been into college football, but it also considering that the place that I grew up in, was uh, the food source for grub worms probably makes sense. Like, how are you going to go get excited when the LA Times lead sentence is that your field was destroyed by a grub worm pandemic? <laughs> probably not pandemic, grub worm outbreak, grub worm epidemic. Um, so there's a time to go into the stadium. Game kicked off at so I want to say the game kicked off at six. So we, we started to meander into the stadium about 5.15 for the pregame festivities, you know, the presenting the colors, the band, all this stuff. And you get in there and it, it just, it was kind of impressive how into it everybody was. Everybody, you could tell, everybody, the student section was bananas. It was like probably um, the, I don't even know, I'm going to say it was the southeast corner of the end zone, just based upon how I viewed my mental compass, the southeast corner of the end zone, it wrapped around like an L shape. So it took up the whole the whole left half of the south end zone and then like the the east side of the stadium, probably up to the 25 yard line, like that whole whole L bottom lower bowl was just all students. And they were into it from the get go. Um, chants and cheers and songs and war eagle, hey, and all kinds of stuff. That was the other thing too. Like I, I kind of felt like 
I didn't know any of the chants. Like they've got all kinds of crazy songs and chants and different things and comebacks. And I didn't know any of them. And I was going, if people are like lip reading me right now and they're seeing that I'm not participating in their pledge of allegiance to the cult of Auburn War Eagle football, again, um, I might be tarred and feathered and drugged through the town square. So I just kind of mumbled my lips along without really saying anything uh, in particular. Um, The coolest part of the whole experience, in my opinion, had to be when they let the eagle out. So probably, I don't know, five, ten minutes before kickoff, they've got this tradition where they let this eagle out of a cage, like middle halfway up between the lower deck and the upper deck. They let this eagle out of the cage and this thing was massive. And I wish I had it on video. I went to hit, I, I queued it up. I had him right in my frame and my big old fat old geezer thumb didn't hit the, the record button. So I ended up following this bird all over the stadium, circling over our head a couple of times and like swooping down and stuff. And everybody's chanting the whoa they're building up to the war eagle thing and after it circled i don't know two or three times it like just dive bombs down to the 50 yard line right in the center of the field and that was pretty cool and i was like oh that was pretty neat i wish i would have had it on camera um and then my kids told me that they had a mouse. Somebody had let a mouse out on the 50 yard line right in the center and that the eagle went down there and just stinking devoured it, like left like bloody entrails. Um, and I was like, really? I didn't see that on the big screen. And they were like, no, they totally, totally just murdered a mouse. And so <laughs> I was like, wow, violent, violent, a preview of things to come with what the football team is hoping to do to the opposition, I guess. Um, so I need to go back and actually see if that was real because they said that they saw a poor, innocent mouse just get fauchied. Oh, no, you're tying a football game into fauci torturing animals. I did see a meme today that said, you know what? It is pre- pretty historical uh, proof that most serial killers get their start by torturing animals. <laughs> And not that serial killers are amusing and not that animal torture is amusing. But when you two, when you put the two together and you apply it to Dr. Fauci, it's kind of funny. Kind of funny. Fire Fauci's been trending until Dorsey and company squelch it. Um, so that was the Auburn experience. Uh, I did see several people get highly inebriated. One guy, so after the game, um, the tailgate guys, part of their deal is that the tent is available for three hours after the completion of the game and or midnight, whichever comes first. So considering that they kicked off at six, and you know, unless they went to like 14 overtimes, it was pretty surefire guarantee that the tent would be available after the fact. So we left a bunch of our stuff there um, and went back. And when we got back, the tent to our left, they had vacated. They were gone. There was probably 25, 30 people there early on. And they were just out like ghost town. The tent to our right, same crew was set up. And the guy earlier in the day, he shows up carrying two five-gallon lo- blue Lowe's buckets, like Home Depot and Lowe's. He's carrying two five-gallon Lowe's buckets. And I was like, is that going to paint? What is he doing? Is he remodeling the tents? Like, I don't understand what's going on. So he... 
plops these blue. Hey, have a have a person walking in. Um, so he plops these two Lowe's buckets down on the grass, and I'm like, "What the heck is this guy doing carrying carrying Lowe's paint around? Like this doesn't make any sense." And he gets his screwdriver out, big old flathead screwdriver, and he pries the lid off, pops it open, and it's like half full of just like slop. I mean, it kind of looks like something you might feed pigs or maybe a bucket of throw up. I mean, it looked disgusting to me. And he gets down in there and he gives it a couple sniffs like, is this going to kill me? Okay. He kind of shrugs his shoulders, picks it up and he pours it into this gigantic like stew cauldron that he's got, that his buddy's got fired up on the Coleman stove. And I was like, oh, they're actually going to eat that. And I kind of looked at him. I was like, yeah, you got some soup there? And he's like, oh, yeah, got some gumbo. And I was like, oh, okay, we are in Alabama. And homeboy's eating gumbo out of a Lowe's five-gallon paint bucket. I was like, this is bizarre. Anyway, the gumbo's heating up, and then their liquor stash comes out. Tons of whiskey, like just whiskey, whiskey bottles everywhere. And they start pounding the whiskey. And so anyway, by the time we get back after the game, it's like 10 p.m., And we're just chilling in the tent, hey, talking, having fun, enjoying friends, whatnot. And this guy, he decides to start pulling his like food wagon, like a little, you know, wagon, not not a red metal wagon, one of those ones with like the bigger, like inflatable tires on it, like a beach wagon. And he just starts doing laps around the tent, pulling this beach wagon. And I was like, what? What, what is this guy doing? And he's so inebriated. I'm not even sure he knows what he's doing. So he's just making laps, pulling this, this wagon around the tent. And on his second lap, he's kind of behind our tent. And you just hear like this, this trip and this stumble and foot clump, clump, clump. And he crashes into the poles on the other tent. It's like rattling around. And I look over and he's holding on to this other tent for balance and he's like got his left arm on the wagon handle and his right arm in this tent he's like doing the splits between the wagon and the tent trying to stay upright and i look underneath and somehow i have no clue how this is (laughs) his belt his pants belt got rolled up underneath one of the tires on the wagon and it like took him out it like seeing a clothesline tackled him at the waist and and I don't even know if he realized that his belt was missing because he, he kept trying to walk and the, the belt was wrapped around the wagon and it was like causing it to not roll very smoothly. <laughs> so I stood up, I walked back and I was like, hey man, you need some help? And he was like, hey, uh, and he just started mumbling incoherently. And I'm not kidding you. I could, I texted, um, I texted uh, one of my wife's uncles and I said, yo, I am in the deep, you know, you're in the deep South when like literally I could understand one or two words out of every 10 that some of these guys were saying. I was just like, uh, I got football. What else you got for me? <laughs> so I couldn't really understand this guy and he just kept trying to walk away and the tent was wrapped around the wheel and I was like, or the, not the tent, the belt. And I said, hey, bro, I said, yo, I said, you got a belt stuck under the wagon. You want me to get that for you? And he just was like, oh, so I got on either and pulled the belt out. And holy smokes, man. So lots and lots and lots of alcohol consumed. Um, Deep South football, they ended up killing Ole Miss. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a drubbing. They they got out big and then Ole Miss kind of mount, tried to mount a comeback. But Lane Kiffin is such a horrible coach and play caller that any chance that Ole Miss had um, 
to do anything was nullified because Lane Kiffin is just a, a, a an awful play calling coach. I'm assuming he's calling the plays. He has an ego um, the size of Texas that would make me conclude that he probably would not give up play calling duties. Um, but what do I know? Um, I just saw what I saw on the field and man, they made some bad decisions. So Auburn ended up winning. Um, and the, the other cool part was two Auburn players names, probably the coolest football names ever. Uh, one of their defenders was called smoke Monday, just a tight sting of football name smoke Monday. He's like one of their, I think he's a linebacker, cornerback. I don't remember, but when they announced him in pregame, the entire, you know, 70,000 person stadium, just a lid blew off of it. And then the other guy was Tank, their uh, Tank Johnson, Tank, Tank Harris, Tank something. Um, their running back was nicknamed Tank, and that guy was a tank. Like, he would get going downfield and just pinball off of people. He was running people over. It was pretty fun. Heard one tiny Let's Go Brandon, the northeast section of the stadium in the fourth quarter, got a Let's Go Brandon chant going. I got to admit, I was a little bit disappointed being in the South, I was hoping to hear 70,000 people chant, let's go Brandon, just because it'd be funny and I could pretend like they were chanting towards me. Um, but it was it was just relegated to the northeast corner of the stadium and no one in our section really got after it. So that was, that was a little disappointing. I wanted to have my name being chanted by 70,000 people and it would have been kind of cool. And I think the last thing I will say is as we were, oh, two more things. So after the game, if they win, they have a tradition of going to like the university square where there's all these trees everywhere and everybody throws rolls of toilet paper all over this like two acre chunk of trees. And I got to admit it, it created a pretty cool visual effect. It felt like a wintry wonderland. I mean, and I feel bad for whoever has to clean that up. Um, But at the time you're just like, in you know euphoria of toilet paper just lobbing through the air like grenades trailing off um and it's kind of just live it's like live ammo i mean granted the ammo is a soft cushiony charmin uh cotton thing but these these rolls of toilet paper are just skyrocketing through the air and just hitting the ground ricocheting off of people's shoulders heads faces torsos bouncing off the ground and then you just pick them up and chuck them again so I uh, unrolled about eight feet worth of trail behind mine and gave it a fire up over one of the bigger trees. And about two feet off of my release point, the eight foot trail of toilet paper broke off and sat in this roll of toilet paper with no trail, uh, just catapulted over this tree and just ricocheted into some crowd. Um, So I picked up the eight foot trail and went and hung it on a branch like Christmas tree tinsel. So I participated. I participated. I'm part of your cult, Auburn. Don't tar and feather me. Um, Don't abduct me and beat me with frying pans. Um, And then the other thing that cracked me up, it's kind of sad, cracked me up, but it was also sad. It was sad, but also funny. Um, We're walking back after the toilet papering thing, went back to the tent, chill for a little bit more. And then, you know, probably 10, 30, 11, things are kind of winding down. Probably 80% of the people are gone. And it's just students on campus and it's kind of calmed down and you just kind of, you know, observe the aftermath of a wild day of SEC football partying. And we're walking back towards where we parked and there's a bench on campus by one of the, you know, student buildings, education building, engineering building, whatever it was. 
and there's a college kid sitting on the bench and he is passed out drunk, like passed out drunk, unconscious, head tilted back, mouth wide open, like out of it. And his girlfriend, I'm assuming it was his girlfriend, was sitting next to him and she's yelling at him, Jack. And she's elbowing him really hard. Jack, wake up. Jack, wake up. It's time to go. And she elbows him really hard a couple times and he's not budging. She stands up, stands up, does a 180, freaking winds up her right, opens up her right hand, winds up like the best tennis forehand you've ever seen and just full on cold cock slaps him across his left cheek. <laughs> I mean, full on, full on like, like old school, like John Wayne movie when the, you know, the female character back in the day has just gone hysterical. And the only way to bring her back to reality is John Wayne, you know, winding up and teeing off and slapping her. <laughs> You're going to get canceled, Brandon. You're talking about domestic violence on the range with good old John Wayne and the Duke. There's actually a clip that was floating around YouTube. I don't know if it still is. And I'm not advocating for violence against women, just in case you got your panties in a bunch. Um, but there was a clip on YouTube. It was floating around and it was like a 10 minute compilation of all of the like 1940 to 1965 uh, Hollywood movie slaps when women got hysterical and guys just teed off and just let them have it and was like, calm down. Um, John Wayne comprised probably three quarters of the 10 minutes. <laughs> anyway, so that's what this girl did. She reversed John Wayne to her boyfriend. She went Duke on him um, and just slapped him in the face so hard. And he, he popped up instantly, he jumped up and he started like doing like semi high knee, like jogging runs around, like kind of in a semicircle. He's like, hi, right, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's time to go. It's time to go. And he was just like running around and like incoherently. And she grabbed his elbow and like interlocked him and was like, all right, we're walking. And, and they just walked off into the distance. It was weird. Um, so sad that that guy drank that much alcohol. Um, but funny that his girlfriend just hauled off and smacked him. Um, so that was Auburn football. That was Auburn football. I have the next thing written down, the Carousel of Progress. And if you've ever been to Disneyland, I saw it in Disneyland. I think the original one was in, is in Disney World. But it's the Carousel of Progress where like back in 1960 at the, at the World's Fair, Walt Disney envisioned this, hey, we're going to do this exhibit that shows the Carousel of Progress. And you sit in this seat and it kind of like spins in a 360 and I think it's broken up into four or five, like it's a circular thing and it's broken up into like four or five stops. And the first stop is like, you know, 19, it's like 18, late 1880s or something. And it's on the, on the range and Hey, let's look how this family used to live. And they hung their clothes out to dry and they had to light a fire and, you know, and then they, that's like, okay, let's see on the next stop of progress. And then it spins and it's like 1920 and they've got like an ice box and an electrical light. And, oh, you can hear cars honking in the background. And then it spins again to like 1940, you know, and they got a radio and, you know, whatever, who knows all the things that you would, you would have in 1940 and then it spins to 1960 and it's like, oh, I got a television set um, and a TV dinner. Yay. And then the version I saw, they had updated because it stopped. Um, they had updated it for 
how they visualized the nineties to be. And it was like VR goggles. It was, it was actually a lot like back to the future two with the Walmart brand, George McFly floating upside down um, for his back injury. And to hide the fact that it wasn't Crispin McGlover or whatever his name was, it was a different actor. Uh, it was kind of had that vibe to it. And it was like, Oh, I'm going to talk to the oven and it's going to cook. And then it ends up burning the Turkey. So it was kind of like a, weird like voice command wannabe siri thing talking to the oven with like kids playing video games with grandpa with vr goggles on and it's weird um why do i bring that up because when you saw that in 1960 at the world's fair you probably thought holy smokes that's gonna be a stinking cool future um and who doesn't want to talk to their oven to get it to cook my roast at night and who doesn't want to have VR goggles on playing with grandpappy? Um, they probably were like, wow, that's so cool. I can't wait for that future to materialize. Well, lo and behold, we're 2021. You go and you watch that exhibit now and it's cringe. It's like, oh my goodness, what were they thinking? This thing is so cringy. The future does not look all that great. Yet, you turn on the news over the last week and Mark Zuckerberg announces that they're rebranding the Facebook company to Meta to enter this Metaverse. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And so I went and I watched the video. Talk about ultimate cringe. Like if I haven't liked, I don't like Zuckerberg to begin with, which is why I closed Facebook in 2009. And again, as I've said previously, if I was consistent, I would close Instagram as well. The second that Facebook acquired them. But you know, sometimes, sometimes you're, consistent across the board. And sometimes there's some exceptions. Sometimes there's some space for some grub worms to eat the grass down to the bare bones. So the metaverse, I went and I watched this video and it was ultimate cringe. Like Mark Zuckerberg is creepy as it is. And then he's in there with his like, Hey guys, welcome to my new thing. It's called metaverse. And then he's like, imagine a world where you can put on VR goggles and turn anything into anything. And then this like weird, like 3D avatar version of Mark Zuckerberg comes out of the screen and starts walking around. And I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I don't even want to watch the rest of this video. But it reminded me, and I even went on their video on CNET, had it on, I posted it on YouTube. I said, this is going to age like Disney's Carousel of Progress and, and Walmart brand George McFly. Like it's, it's going to have that same like 20 years down the road. Uh, this isn't as cool as you think it is. <laughs> um, so the cynic in me says that he simply wants to log uh, in vector format all of the interior dimensions of every house in the entire globe. You know that they're going to be doing that, right? You put on the VR goggles and you scan around your house and it's going to log all of those dimensions. Why would they want to do that? I don't know but it's creepy nonetheless. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The metaverse, it just made me think of the carousel of progress. And that's that. And that is all I've got to say about that, to quote Forrest Gump. Um, which reminds me that the Braves won the World Series last night because they did this little thing. Last time the Braves won the World Series, let's take a look in the 1995 time machine. And Forrest Gump won Best movie, 1995. Um, I was sweating bullets there for a little bit. I mean, we're, we transplanted to Atlanta, so we're kind of transplant fans. I was a big fan in the 90s when they went from worst to first in 91 and 92. Some great memories of them beating the Pittsburgh Pirates 
And then Charlie Liebrandt had to break my heart twice in the World Series, being one of the most ineffective relief pitchers in the major leagues during that span. Although he did save the day in the in the NLCS, but hey, you, you save the day in the NLCS and you you lay an egg in the World Series, you're remembered for laying the egg in the World Series. Just like that kicker for the Bills. Nobody remembers that his kick sent them to the Super Bowl. All they remember is that they lost the Super Bowl because he boofed it to the right against Bill Parcells and the Giants. As my friends used to say, that's the Kiss Your Sister Award. Winning the NLCS is the Kiss Your Sister Award. Winning the World Series is the main thing. Um, all right. Anyway, yeah, they were they were making me a little nervous when they got up 6-0 because it reminded me of when they were up 6-0 against the Yankees, I think in game five of the 96 World Series, and they ended up losing it. And I was like, oh, come on, at least get one more run. Let's not repeat the 6-0 blown lead. Um, and sure enough, I think it was Freddie Freeman. He stepped up and hit some opposite field dinger to like left center, which is odd for a left-handed batter to get it out there, but he bombed that thing. I think the the... The Solaire home run, if you weren't watching, the Solaire home run to go up 3-0 was quite possibly the coolest home run I've ever seen. Like the second, the second the ball was on his bat, he knew that it was like in to the metaverse. I mean, the thing was crushed into the next reality, next dimension that thing went. Um, and then he did like kind of like a, he just kind of laid the bat down and like pounded his chest and pointed to his dugout. A little gloating, but hey. Game six of the World Series, two on, two out. You stinking send one. I'd probably do a little gloating myself. I'm not going to be self-righteous in that. In that. Um, here we go. We're going to open this up. Last thing I'm going to talk about is uh, the Virginia elections. Um, the homie, I don't even know their names, Macaulay, McAuliffe, Macaulay Culkin, he lost the Democrat incumbent, um, and he lost to Youngkin, Youngkin, uh, who's the Republican. And the cool thing for me was that the lieutenant governor is a black woman. She's from um, Jamaica, and she immigrated to the U.S., she was in the Marines um, and she, you know, she, to me, she embodies the American dream. Like you immigrate, you work hard, you advance, you succeed. And that's that's the American dream. Equal opportunity, not equal outcome. And so <laughs> I get up this morning and I just I got a couple Twitter feeds that I check, even though I'm not on Twitter. And one of the one of these feeds was highlighting all of the leftist media outlets melting down that the Republican had won. And one of my favorites was Joy Reid, the MSNBC contributor, um, who was going off on the fact <laughs> that the Yunkin win was just it was demo it was demonstrating how strong white supremacy is. And someone replied. <laughs> Someone replied with a picture of the lieutenant governor stating she's the first black woman to hold this level of office in Virginia in the history of the state. 200 and some years. And her response was. <laughs> her, 
her response was, you don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. Oh my goodness. I laughed for five minutes. I was like, oh my goodness, these people, the, the, all of these crazy examples of this, it's, it's just, they are case studies in when your ideology uh, is so rigid and so locked in, it blocks out just all common sense. Um, and that's where we're at with some of these very, very extreme partisans on both sides of the aisle. You get so locked into an ideology that common sense just is is prohibited from entering the space. Um, and then my other favorite response was someone responded to that comment and said, amen. Um, oh, and by the way, she's not actually an African-American. She immigrated. She's, she's Jamaican. <laughs> it's just funny. People, people so locked into playing group identity games, the, the, Goalposts are constantly in flux and they're constantly moving because sometimes those that broad definitions, when they don't fit your narrative, then they have to change. So she can have dark colored skin and all of the sudden she's a white supremacist because she's not African-American. She's Jamaican. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you do other than just laugh. I really don't know what you other do than, than just laugh, which is what I've been doing today. It is just hilarious to me. Um, but probably the coolest story that came out of that whole thing, two of them, one, um, the Seattle city attorney, Okay, you know, last year we had all of you know, all of the stuff in Seattle with uh, Chop and you know all the Antifa and just anarchists running amok, and roll around to election cycle, and the Republican city attorney beat the incumbent Democrat by twenty points in Seattle, and someone commented said, "Okay, when you've lost Seattle." you know that you've jumped the shark. You know your platform's gone off the rails when a Republican wins the Seattle city attorney race by 20 points. So I think what you're going to see is I think you're going to, you're going to, you're either going to see the left like even double down further on their lunacy of critical race theory and calling parents domestic terrorists and, you know, inventing 49,000 genders and accusing everybody that they disagree with of being a racist and a homophobe and a xenophobe and a misogynist and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, transphobe. Um, you're either going to see them like even more double down on that or they're just going to, somebody's going to wake up in their Democratic Party and go, um, okay, maybe we have taken this too far. Um, my hunch, my, my gut feeling is that, not my gut feeling, this is just my jadedness, I think that Obama and company have a war room set up ever since he left office and he's just sitting around going, hey, you know, what can we do to implement this whatever, you know, global reset that we're trying to do? Um, oh, my goodness, you're crazy. Um, I don't know if I am or not. I don't know if I am or not. 
but there were people who were saying, I guess there's black pilled people, which are just like fatalists. And there was a whole group online that was like, hey, you know, don't get too excited about uh, the liberal wokeness being rejected at the polls last night. It just means that the powers that be gave us that election to get, to make us trick us into thinking that we still have control over our election mm -hmm. process. And when it really comes down to it mattering, um, they'll just flip the switch and they'll do whatever they want. And I was like, wow. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that, that, uh, there, there hasn't been shady things at the ballot box over our country's history. Um, but to take that view is, <laughs> maybe, maybe a little, little bridge too far. I don't know. There's a bridge too far going both ways. We just need to be on the common sense Island perhaps. Um, but the, the coolest story was, what's this guy's name? Um, Edward Durr, conservative truck driver who reportedly spent just $153 on his campaign, is leading Steve Sweeney, the longest serving legislative leader, leader in New Jersey history by 2009 votes. And I never heard of this guy, but David Durr, um, he's just a dude. He spent $153 reportedly on his campaign, which was largely just filing fees. Um, and he's leading... Uh, by 2009 votes over the longest serving uh, dude in the New Jersey government. And if I read the article correctly, he's that that position that he ran for is the second most powerful position in all of New Jersey. So I Googled this guy, Edward Durr, and he released one campaign video. Hey, our Chihuahua's acting up. He released one campaign video um, and it was just him standing in front of his house going, hey, yo, uh, hey, uh, I, I raised three kids here and uh, I drive a truck and, uh, you know, I was upset that I couldn't get a concealed carry permit and, hey, you know, vote for me. And he hops on his motorcycle and drives away. <laughs> I was like, dude, this guy's amazing. So I hope that he actually ends up winning because I think that that is he's he is the common sense, rational approach outcome, in my opinion, of the Donald Trump phenomenon. So I think the Donald Trump phenomenon was the unheard masses, the the non-elites saying, hey, no one's listening to us. And both political parties are chock full of wealthy elitists who don't care about the small guy. And I think for whatever reason, I don't know why the small guy would pick a bazillionaire as their leader, but hey, you know, whatever floats your boat, I guess. Um, I think it's because he was the only one who was giving recognition to, you know, the flyover states and the little guy and the blue, the blue collar hard worker and the family, you know, that just wants traditional, quote unquote, traditional American values and a meritocracy and whatnot. And so he's gregarious and he's a megalomaniac and he's got a big, bold, loud personality. And lots of people found his insults to be funny and they liked the candor and they liked the, hey, at least he's not, you know, playing patty cake with Justin Trudeau, you know, signing backroom deals for whatever. I think that this Edward Durr is the same sentiment of, hey, we're flipping the bird to the political elite who have just enriched themselves while abandoning the rest of us, um, just in the form of instead of him being a bazillionaire like Donald Trump, you know, he's just a truck driver for some furniture company in New Jersey who was like, hey, screw it. You know, somebody's got to do something. Um, I think that's what it is. So I don't think it's a Republican v. Democrat thing as much as it is um, 
a chastisement of the out-of-touch political aristocracy that has really, you know, entrenched itself across the board in pretty much every level of of government around our country. So I think that's what you're seeing with a lot of this stuff, with parent involvement, with the school boards, with truck drivers running for office, with, um, you know, places that were historically Democrat flipping to Republicans. I don't think it's a Democrat versus Republican. I think it's partly the Democratic platform has gotten so anti-American um, as far as it relates to communism and Marxism and state control over everything. Uh, that coupled with the elitist out of touch stuff, I think you're, you know, I think that's why you got Edward Durr. Um, so I don't know where we go forward. I, I think that, you know, the left always eats its own, but the right always uh, gets in tit for tat fights with itself. And I just read that Mike Pompeo reportedly told Trump that he's running for the GOP primary and he will be challenging Trump. So you're probably going to have a lot of, uh, you know, you're probably going to have DeSantis. You're probably going to have Pompeo. You're probably going to have guys that, you know, are supportive of Trump, but feel like, hey, you know, we're not as crass and we have a little bit more, you know, political acumen, perhaps. Um and we're younger, whatever. So, you know, I, I would be curious to see what happens. But um, and that's probably a good thing that, you know, there's a lot of infighting because it I think it prevents too much power getting consolidated. But um, I do think that's funny. Edward Durr will keep an eye on the count. But 153 bucks. And to give you an idea of why it's not Democrat versus Republican back in 2017, I read that the the Republican, the establishment Republican raised $5.4 million in 2017 to try to unseat this Steve Sweeney cat. And the Republican lost by 18 points. So, you know, it has nothing to do with, in my opinion, Republican versus Democrat it has more to do with anti-elitism um, and sort of the authoritarian moral busybodies dictating every last detail of our lives. Um, so let's go, Brandon. Whoop, whoop. And we'll see you on the next potty. I'm going to call this the potty, P O D D Y, although it sounds like P O T T Y. See you on the next potty. Oh, man, was this even recording? Oh, good. Whew. Whew. Big sigh of relief there. That would have been 54 minutes and 23 seconds worth, worth of wasted space. Um, adios.